This is Michael Turner interviewing Dr. Andre Lagash on behalf of British Journal of Sports Medicine here at the AMSSM conference in Hollywood, Florida. Andre Lagash is a consultant cardiologist at St. Vincent and the Alfred Hospitals in Melbourne, and he is also head of sports cardiology at the Baker Institutes. Andre, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to do this podcast. Can you just tell listeners what is an athlete's heart? Uh, the athlete's heart's a combination of of changes in the structure, function, and electrics of the heart, all designed or all adaptations to make the heart able to pump more blood during exercise. There's changes that occur in the heart in both strength and endurance-trained athletes. Um, traditionally, it's thought that strength-trained athletes get increases in in the thickness of the heart muscle, but not so much in the in the chamber size. Um, although some recent data has suggested that the changes that occur in strength-trained athletes is really quite modest. By far the biggest changes that we see in athletes' heart are in endurance athletes, and there we see really very marked increases in, in cardiac volumes, cardiac size, and that is roughly symmetrical with increases in the left and right ventricles and also the left and right atria. Um, the, the increase in the size of the heart is, is quite proportional to the degree of fitness. In fact, there's been a good correlation demonstrated between VO2 max and uh, cardiac volume and ventricular volumes. So essentially, the, the harder you train and the fitter you get, the larger your heart. And this all fits with the, the um, idea of adaptation to improve muscle, to improve blood flow to the muscles. Essentially, your heart can only pump so fast. Your maximal heart rate is no different between athletes and non-athletes. And so the ability to increase blood flow to the muscles is largely determined by how, how large the heart is. To some extent, it's also determined by um, improvements in diastolic function so that the larger heart is able to suck more blood into it during diastole or during your re relaxation. And then to probably a smaller extent, there's also improvements in systolic function. The other changes that we see are, are electrical changes and the heart, um, there's a change in the innervation to the heart with, with changes in the sympathetics and parasympathetics so that the heart is slower at rest. And there's also some very interesting data from Mark Boyer and Gwil Morris in Manchester suggesting that the iron channels in the conduction tissues of the heart are also remodelled in athletes, which contributes to the slowness of the heart um, and potentially also um, to increasing amounts of heart block um, independent of, of the traditional vagal influences. So again, in summary, there's a athlete's heart results in larger chambers, some improvement in function, and also some changes in the in the electrical properties of the heart. You recently published a meta-analysis in the BJSM on the right ventricle uh, following prolonged endurance exercise. We tend to be a bit obsessed with uh, the left side of the heart. Are we overlooking a more important side of the heart? Yes, I believe that we are. Traditionally, as in all realms of cardiology, we've tended to focus on the left ventricle. But consistently now, um, 
almost all recent studies that have looked at heart function after exercise have, have demonstrated that the right ventricle is affected much more than the left ventricle. We've um, done a lot of work looking at the hemodynamic stressors during exercise and also shown that the, the right ventricle is affected more than the left ventricle. So everything really points toward the right ventricle and I think it's, it's, uh, it's a critical part of the heart that needs to be looked at as we, as we try to untangle whether or not the changes that occur in athlete's heart are always benign and whether there's any consequences. It's a little bit analogous to, to looking for stress fractures in a marathon runner. We, of course, wouldn't start looking at the arms. Um, and if we've clearly identified that the right ventricle and also the, the atria um, are particularly affected during exercise, then they should be very much part of the uh, focus and the measurements when we're looking at athlete's heart and particularly prospectively looking at changes in the athlete's heart and how that relates to problems in the future if there are any. You also studied uh, ultra-endurance exercise. What were your main findings in, in that area? So we, we looked at um, athletes after endurance events of, of varying durations. Well, we um, published a study in, in Heart in 2008 in which we really went in a little bit uh, without a guided hypothesis, or at least our hypothesis was simply that biomarkers were released during endurance exercise and how that related to function, much as many other investigators have. And to our surprise, at that stage, um, we were looking particularly at the left ventricle and on the corner of the screen uh, consistently saw quite marked right ventricular dysfunction. And so that led to a, a more targeted hypothesis, which was that the right ventricle is affected, and that enabled us to construct really the best echocardiographic measures of right ventricular function, including strain and three-dimensional measures. And we looked at those before and after endurance events of differing uh, durations, a marathon, a, a a half Ironman triathlon, a prolonged alpine cycling race and an Ironman, which, which um, uh, fortuitously the, the average finishing time was three hours, five hours, eight hours and 11 hours, so really quite a nice dose, um, dose effect. And we found a, do a real dose response of the exercise in that uh, the people doing a marathon had very little measurable change in cardiac function and right ventricular function, whereas as we went to the 5, 8 and 11 hour events, we saw um, incrementally more right, um, right ventricular dysfunction as measured by right ventricular ejection fraction and also by strain, fractional area change and TAPSI. In fact, every single measure that we chose of right ventricular function was reduced immediately after the race, whereas not a single measure of left ventricular function was changed. So again, it highlighted that, that uh, it was all about the right ventricle. The other thing that was, that was uh, unique in that study was that we again showed that troponin and, and B-type natriuretic peptide were increased after a race, as many investigators had but for the first time showed a correlation with right ventricular uh, function. In fact, the, the decrement in right ventricular ejection fraction correlated uh, moderately well with, with increases in troponin and BMP. 
but not at all again with the left ventricle. So we concluded that much of the discussion in the literature that had somewhat dismissed the biomarker changes because they didn't correlate with functional changes might have been because they were simply looking at the wrong part of the heart. If you're an average doctor and you're concerned about an athlete taking part in these ultra-endurance events, what sort of investigations do you think are worthwhile to uh, elucidate the uh, problem? That's a very good question. I think that the practical implications of the research are, are still to be elucidated. The, the, a lot of athletes, particularly with some of the media discussion now, are starting to ask what the implications are. And I don't think that there's enough evidence to really change our recommendations. At the moment, the, the health benefits of, of endurance exercise are proven and the potential risks from the changes that we've seen in heart function and others have seen um, are, are really still theoretical. There's not been that clear link between the, the changes that we see after endurance exercise and the, um, and the increase in arrhythmias. It's important to, to, to note that there has been quite clearly demonstrated an increase in some arrhythmias such as atrial fibrillation, which does raise some concern, but that clearly only happens in a small number of athletes, and we're not very good at all at the moment in picking who those athletes are. So coming back to your question, the practical discussions with an athlete, I think the, the day has arrived where we can suggest that there, we can tell the athletes that there is an increase in some arrhythmias, but that the risk remains small um, and that there's not any clear um, guidance at the moment as to how they can uh, avoid those arrhythmias. And there's unfortunately not really any, any test that will help us um, predict who might be at more risk than someone else. The term cardiac fatigue is still in common use. Is this a, a physiological or pathological phenomenon or is it just a, a dustbin diagnosis? It's, it's a very interesting discussion. I think that uh, Pamela Douglas was the first to coin the term um, cardiac fatigue. And the, the cynic in me would think that partly the term's arisen because of our, um, our fear in considering the alternative, which, is, which would be cardiac damage. The thing that supports the term cardiac fatigue is that, is that all of the changes that we see in cardiac function and all of the changes in, in biomarkers are short-lived at their transient. So just as we can see changes in particularly right ventricular function, after 24 hours or at most a few days, the heart function is back to normal. So in that respect, I think the term fatigue holds. But if we use the analogy of skeletal muscle and we think about the marathon runner, for example, uh, we don't have any concern in saying that at the end of the race there's damage to their muscles. We see marked increases in 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 creatine kinase, the, the biomarker of skeletal muscle damage, we see decrements in contractility of the muscle and we see inflammation and we're happy to call that damage. But we also see that the damage completely recovers and in fact the muscle sometime afterwards is, is recovered to the extent where it could tolerate the same load even better, if you like, it supercompensates. 
with the heart, we know that we see biomarker release, we see decreases in contractility, and with time we see the heart get bigger or supercompensate. So I think the same analogy can be drawn between skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle, except that we, we sort of fear the, the, the term damage, um, whereas I think it all becomes a little bit semantics and, and um, uh, wordplay. What is more important is in that cycle of, of cardiac turnover or regeneration, is there any small amount of damage that can accumulate and cause long-term effects? A little bit like, again, the, the, the skeletal muscle and the, and the runner who might get little builds up of build-up of injury and, and some Achilles damage. Possibly that same analogy could be used for, for heart muscle in a small number of athletes. But that is very much speculation and not proven. If you stop exercise and you detrain, uh, and you're an ultra-endurance athlete, does your heart return to normal size? So, yes, when you detrain, your heart gets smaller. Does it return to normal size? Uh, probably not. There's, there's some um, data from Antonio Pelliccia in Italy that shows that in highly trained athletes, even after detraining for many decades, the heart size doesn't return to normal ranges. The issue with that data is that we don't have um, any information on what the heart sizes were before endurance training. And there's um, some argument that people became elite endurance athletes because their hearts were big to start with and they're just returning back to their own norm. However, it is, there is some data which clearly shows now that um, as you increase your training, your heart gets larger. and if we extrapolate from that, it's probable, therefore, that those athletes didn't necessarily have much bigger hearts to begin with. And so I, I tend to interpret the data overall to suggest it's highly likely that the heart doesn't return back to normal size. And that's true both of the ventricles and also from a Swiss group have also shown that uh, in, in cyclists many years after retiring, they still have larger atria than the general population. In your mind, are there long-term health consequences of prolonged strenuous exercise or merely the fact that you have a slightly large heart is not going to impact uh, your longevity? So I think that that question needs to be divided into two parts. One is on a general public health or population level uh, and in that respect I really don't believe that endurance exercise represents a health concern. Uh, I think that the, the benefits of exercise clearly outweigh the risks and that even includes people doing very high amounts of exercise. However, if we take that to the individual, there are some individuals, probably not a large number, in whom I do believe that um, that exercise can cause changes to the heart with health consequences, such as those athletes who develop atrial fibrillation. And perhaps, although the data is less strong, um, there may be an increase in some more serious uh, arrhythmias such as ventricular tachycardia. The issue is working out who those athletes are early so that we can do something about it. Um, there is... 
a degree to which we can hide behind the public health message and say if overall exercise is better than if it causes more benefits than harm, then let's not worry about it. Whereas as a doctor, when you're faced with a patient with these um, issues, then then I, th- I really feel that it's something that we need to try to sort out. So where do we go from here? What is the next phase of your research? So... Where we get the, one of the biggest issues for me, there's a, there's a number of uh, issues in the broad field of sports cardiology that I think are important future concerns. Um, firstly, there's the there's the clinical issue of separating um, athletes' heart from athletes who have a pathology and potentially a pathology which could cause uh, life-threatening consequences, such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or other cardiomyopathies. In that realm, there's been a lot of publications um, which discuss the so-called grey zone or overlap between athlete's heart and these cardiomyopathies. The issue with the data um, to, to this current point is that we have tended to compare athletes, uh, healthy athletes, with patients with these cardiomyopathies and there the distinctions are quite clear what is interesting however is that athletes with the cardiomyopathy are not necessarily as as uh, distinct from from patients with the cardiomyopathy if i provide an example hypertrophic cardiomyopathy barry marin has described quite nicely that that um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is associated with increases in wall muscle thickness, decreases in VO2 max, and uh, problems with cardiac diastology. Whereas myself and a number of investigators have seen highly trained athletes with mild hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who have normal diastology and superb uh, or very high VO2 max values. And by all of the traditional grey zone measures, they would fit more into the athlete category than hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, yet in many cases are genetically proven or have um, clear family um, members affected, etc. So the, 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 um, one of the future areas of investigation is going to need to be comparing athletes with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to other people with cardiomyopathy so that we can more clearly um, isolate those factors which which make the diagnosis of a cardiomyopathy more clear. And outside of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, I think it becomes even more difficult with dilated cardiomyopathy and with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy where the phenotypes are, are sometimes very close. So that's one realm of investigation. Uh, for the future. And the second, I believe, is, is coming back to the previous discussion of, of trying to work out which athletes will get into trouble. And I think that, that of those small number of athletes who do develop atrial fibrillation or who develop um, uh, other arrhythmias, there's probably a number of, of other factors, either intercurrent illness, perhaps some training factors, the other one which I really believe may well be a factor is, is genetics and not, um, not so much the black and white um, single gene conditions such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, 
but maybe um, milder genes or a polygenic uh, profile, um, which becomes a very complex thing to sort out, but um, is, is an area of future investigation for ourselves and for a number of investigators around the world. Andre, thank you very much indeed, and uh, look forward to uh, hearing how your research goes. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael.